Well, welcome back, everybody, to Sex and Couples Therapy with the Happy Ending Therapist. That's me. I'm Donna Harris-Richards, LICSW, and Certified Sex Therapist, here with my lovely Vicki, doing our next podcast on the intersection of neuroscience and sex and couples therapy, a myth-busting, non-pathologizing approach. <laughs> How's that for a lot of words? Non-pathologizing is a word. It's a large word. What does it mean? <laughs> so I, I, what I love about this work is the idea that non-pathologizing means I'm not coming from a pathological perspective. So a pathology indicates a disease state and people are coming to me with very normal stuff uh, for the most part. You know, even when they're coming for sex therapy because there's erectile dysfunction or uh, premature ejaculation, etc. I'm ruling out, I'm doing this biopsychosocial sexual assessment where I'm ruling out pathology because if there is pathology, some disease state, for example, you know, plaque in the arteries leading to issues around erection, um, etc., or pelvic pain for women, dyspareunia, um, things like that, then I'm referring out to a doctor who deals with pathologies, who deals with disease states or conditions, injuries, et cetera, that they can help a person with. Um, beyond that, once all of that's ruled out and worked on and they're coming back to me, it's usually about anxiety in the relationship um, or individual anxiety when it comes to sexuality, um, again, which is all undergirded quite often by belief systems and ways that were raised and shaped socioculturally and all that stuff. So I'm helping people kind of break all that down, just take a look at it, figure out what they want to hang on to, what they want to get rid of for options and go from there. So that's what I mean by just, it's a lot of normalizing for people, which I think feels good and helps people immediately have less anxiety, one would hope. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to talk about neuroscience today, but very generally, and I know I'm going to run the risk. I don't want to seem reductionist, meaning I don't want to oversimplify things, but it's such a large and uh, beautiful yet complicated field of study. I don't want to get too much into uh, the language and, and sort of make it confusing for folks. Um, it's confusing enough, <laughs> but it's really <laughs> wonderful when we can kind of look at the most important things. Um, you know, for example, and, and a lot of this is based on this gorgeous book uh, called Loving with the Brain and Mind, Neurobiology and Couple Therapy by Mona Dekoven Fishbane. She's a PhD. Um, and I'm also citing things once again from my hero, David Schnark and Secrets to the Passionate Marriage, uh, Emily Nagoski, who wrote Come As You Are. All of these are actually up on the website, uh, my sexandcouplestherapy.com website. So, so um, you know, Fishbane talks about how our brains can change for the better, that our brains have neuroplasticity, if you will. Um, and we used to think, you know, that our brains didn't grow and change. We now, of course, know that they do. Uh, but we can develop and we can rewire our brains. You know, this is an idea that is so helpful for therapy, whether it's individual therapy, sex therapy, couples therapy, that we can, if we begin to uh, do things differently, we are actually rewiring the brain. So like stroke victims, uh, when they do exercises, I think of... Someone I once worked with who told a story about washing dishes after the stroke and standing at the sink, 
being afraid to let go. And uh, the, the therapist that my client was working with said, let go for a few seconds at a time and then grab a hold again and wash the dishes. Because if you never let go, your brain will not wire or rewire itself to understand that it can. Um, and sometimes like with hearing after, after a stroke, uh, there may be a deficit in hearing in one ear, but the, the brain will rewire to create sound for the other ear or the, for the other ear to begin to hear. Um, and it's just a matter of things growing and changing as we develop and, and exercise and do what the, the therapist tells us to do, occupational therapist, physical therapist, etc. It's also like the violinist who fingers with the left hand and bows with the right hand. So they have a change in the somatosensory map where the brain maps their left fingers um, which become larger and more differentiated. So again, by doing, we, we create brain change, which is interesting. It's not just like the brain changes automatically. When we do stuff, the experience, and I'll go back to this later, new experiences help us change our brain. And it's relevant to couple and sex therapy in that we can do the same thing with behaviors. We can start to recognize what's happening in our brain that's making us behave the way we are which is what comes naturally, but we need to shift it if we want something different and better. Right. If that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> thinking about COVID-19 and the pandemic, I'm starting to see now with clients that people are beginning to adapt. Um, they're not as nervous again about, th I mean, you know, people are nervous, but but they're starting to, like you, Vicki, you know, plant gardens and um, do things at home uh, to make ourselves more comfortable and begin to live in the new world that we're living in. And people are starting to, to relax a bit. So there's this idea that um, when we adapt a, as a species, um, we become more flexible uh, or we're, we're using our flexibility. And it points to this idea that Fishbane talks about in her book, which is the dance of the amygdalas. Or she also calls it the limbic tango. So, so let me just talk a little bit about that for a second. So, you know, our limbic brains, um, though that's the fight or flight stuff. That's the deep core brain, the amygdala in there when we experience trauma or, you know, small trauma, larger trauma, whatever. I talked about this in the last podcast, the we see a stick and we think it's a snake and we jump, right? So this is this automatic survival mechanism that goes on. And it plays out in couples therapy um, in that if we see something uh, that makes us feel shame or that we feel judged um, and then feel shamed, we, we react, you know, and so we attack and things kind of quickly escalate. Um, couples tend to blame. Uh, there's this idea of, you know, victim and villain. So I want to sort of try to help them change this blame reframe. So changing the blame reframe um, begins to do to do the following, or we, we can adapt the following ideas that we want to uh, turn toward our partner rather than away from our partner. Now, this is not easy to do when you're feeling attacked, I understand, but this is a Gottman idea. I'm just going to talk a little bit about an acronym called ATTUNE. Um, so A-T-T-U-N-E, um, so giving our A attention to our partner, TT turning toward our partner, U beginning to develop understanding, N understanding our own needs and our partner's needs, and E developing empathy, when you um, which leads to... When, when you say turn towards your partner, do you mean physically turn towards or are you saying more emotionally? Uh, both. 
physically for sure. I, I'm helping a, couples make eye contact, um, which is often hard to do. Because again, when we're feeling vulnerable, as I talked about in the last podcast, it's not easy to kind of face that thing that, that scares you right. in your partner, <laughs> right? Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's both physical uh, and, and emotional. Um, so what this does is cr- starts to turn um, in this idea of independence um, into interdependence, if you will, meaning that, you know, we, we want to be able to kind of lean on our partner. And enjoy them and have pleasure. But we're so fiercely individualistic um, and independent that we have to figure out a way to do that. So I want couples to start to, and I, and I kind of get in there with them and I do this, to develop this collaborative idea, you know, so that uh, rather than a competition, it becomes a collaboration, which I think of myself as kind of being down in there with, with them in the collaborative process, um, turning, um, you know, a debate to a dialogue instead. Right. Which is a nice idea. Um, And part of this is exploring beliefs and and what's happened to folks, you know, little traumas, bigger traumas. Um, And and oftentimes people will say, well, I don't remember ever having any trauma. But, you know, experiences even, you know, especially for children and when you're a teenager, experiences can be sort of upending. And, And even though it's a small T or a small trauma, it's still something that kind of stays with us again in our neuro pathways in our, those neurons that live in there. And it's interesting that people can have these small traumas and not even realize them. And then they come out sideways or they come out and something and they're like, where did that come from? And I feel like part of your job in couples therapy is to help them figure out how to harness them into something positive in a way. Yes, and I love that you just said that because what that means is that we're looking at resilience. I'm I'm really looking for how couples are already figuring out how to resolve their problems and build on that. You know, so there's this idea um, that Fishbane talks about. She talks about evolutionary readiness. Um, you know, uh, that. Let me just talk about that stick and that snake again. Um, you know, our partner in the living room becomes that snake. That's really a stick, if that makes sense. Um, but, but somehow we adapt. I mean, like we are right now in the pandemic, we're adapting, we're getting along, we're surviving. Um, we're relaxing a bit. Uh, hopefully we don't get too relaxed and, and go out and not use our masks and not socially distance. Um, we have to keep that stuff in mind, but too much self-protection results in too much distance between partners. And so this idea of kind of starting to see where the vulnerability comes from, um, we can begin to externalize blame, if that makes sense. What does that mean? So it's like externalizing anxiety. We can think about putting it outside of ourselves. Is it like putting yourself in somebody else's shoes to, to view it differently? Yeah, that's part of it. It's also this idea that you want to look at yourself, right? So we don't want to look to our partner for the change. We want to look to ourselves. So we want to start to recognize, oh, there's that thing I'm doing again, right? So we might be asking our husband uh, as a wife to cook more because of the division, the division of labor feels skewed. Um, and he cooks. And then we walk over and say, what are you doing? 
And he's like, well, what do you mean? What am I doing? <laughs> I'm cooking like you asked me to. And she might say, yeah, but, you know, you didn't do it this way. Or, you know, then, then we, you know, we start to kind of uh, get critical and we have to be able to. Yeah, that ever pesky. Yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I often will say to people, take the, the word but out of the vocabulary and put and. It helps a lot. Right. Mm. Oh, there you're cooking. And why don't you try some more basil or whatever the case may be rather than but because mm. uh, immediately that makes people go on defense. Right. So and there's that fight or flight thing. There's that shame piece, uh, which quickly uh, makes things catch on fire. <laughs> and we have to we have to reel back from that. So ex- getting back to the idea of externalizing something, meaning putting it outside of ourselves. Um, put the the idea of blame outside of yourself. Put the idea of the anxiety outside of yourself. Like I'm getting pretty good now at at 59, going on 60, uh, when I'm either prepping for the podcast or I'm doing something that, uh, you know, in my life, my other life, I sing and sometimes performances bring up anxiety. So I'm getting better at saying, okay, there's my anxiety. I see it like a cloud passing by. Uh, you know. We're all flawed, so I I fall into the same, you know, anxiety-stuck place that lots of people do. But if we can see it as a thing outside of ourselves, it it helps. Or if we can also see um, it only as a little part of ourselves. You know, we have many parts of ourselves. This is part of—I wasn't even thinking about talking about this today, but there's this um, therapy called Internal Family Systems— And with internal family systems, it's this idea of looking at parts of ourselves, like we have a part that's a self-critic, right? Or we have a part of ourselves that's that's a judge or a part of ourselves that's an overachiever, you know, all these parts of ourselves. It doesn't mean that's the whole of us. So if we can separate it out, like externalizing the problem, we can tend to um, just see it differently and, and conquer it better, if you will. Absolutely. So getting back to neuroscience, you know, Fishbane talks about the two-track system. So she talks about what's automatic versus what's intentional or proactive. So again, I, I love these metaphors like the car metaphor. You know, the, the, so we get in our car, right? You know, we, we turn it on. When we're thinking about driving to get somewhere, we're not thinking about working on the engine, right? The engine's already there running itself. It's like the autonomic nervous system which is made up of the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous systems, right? So these are pretty much sort of running running on themselves. Um, our job is just to steer the car. So there, there's the prefrontal cortex in the brain, the, the thing that controls decision-making, judgment, all that stuff. Um, we do that pretty well at work in our jobs. You know, if we're working with someone we don't like necessarily or we have a problem we're working on, um, we do it in a way where usually um, we can be heard. We're not emotional, right? Because we know that doesn't work. So we want to apply the same idea in our relationships, but it's hard because we've got that fight or flight thing going on with our partners because our partners are different. Usually our partners are the only ones we're having sex with. <laughs> and and that's where the vulnerability comes in, right? This, ah, you know, I'm going to be judged or maybe they're going to think I'm not attractive, mm. you know, and so we get into all this stuff. So, so I want to help people by getting in there as their kind of witness and facilitator and coach, if you will, certainly not judge. That's not my role. My role is also not to help them make a decision, but help them to make their own decisions, if you will. Um, 
you know, there's this idea that I want to help them create a blame-free, shame-free zone at home. I'm creating that in the therapy session, a bla- starting to create the blame-free, shame-free zone mm. where people can begin to share more of themselves. I hear this so often from women and, you know, in heterosexual couples, um, you know, even in same-sex couples, you know, there's one partner who shares more than the other. So I want to get that partner sharing more, but they can only do so if, if the safe is a... Sorry, the space is a safe one. Hmm. Um, And so the neurons that fire together wire together. So if couples are sitting there and they're firing off uh, negative neurons, then we get negative neural pathways that form. If they're firing off positive ones, expressing appreciation, creating a safe space, they get stronger positive connections. So when it comes to a relationship, it looks like you're f- trying to focus on those positives so that you're training your brain to find those positives instead of only focusing on the negatives, right? That is correct. Training your brain is correct. And a positive may be the following. Hey, honey, you promised to take out the trash and you didn't take out the trash. Can you please take out the trash and follow through on your agreement? Mm. You know, that's that's okay. Rather than, you know, name calling and screaming and yelling, because that that only, you know, kind of gets those neurons firing. Now, this is not easy. It takes practice. Um, and, And I want people to think about how they're not giving themselves up. They're not losing in that interaction. They're winning for the sake of the relationship. Mm. And especially if there are children in the mix. You know, children are watching their parents and how they solve problems individually and especially relationally. So I will tell people, treat your partner like a friend or a colleague. I know that is not easy. And I know that doesn't come naturally. Right. So we're busting that. It comes naturally myth. No, it's it takes work, but the work can be good work, constructive work rather than destructive work to get the pearl from the oyster, as we talked about in the last podcast, right? Soothing the irritation from the grain of sand produces the oyster. And it's Uh, good to... Strapping ourselves to the mast of the ship and thinking about what we want for the relationship is more effective for the relationship or the marriage than being right about your own individual idea. And it's good too, especially if there are kids in that relationship to see their parents you know, focusing on the positives and acknowledging the difficulties and the negatives, but just continuing to focus on that positive. I saw a quote somewhere and it basically along the lines of neuroplasticity, another word that's difficult for me to say. Um, no, you that, said it great. <laughs> that the brain is like Velcro to negativity and Teflon to positivity. And you have to try to keep focusing on that positive to, to keep your brain recognizing it when you don't think there's any positive to recognize. That's right. And that's because, again, we're hardwired for survival. So we're always looking for the threat in the environment. We're looking for the thing that might hurt us, attack us, kill us. Um, And our partner often looks like that threat because the amygdala, getting back to the amygdala, doesn't have a timestamp. It can't distinguish from the past to the present. It's only looking for threat. And so once we know that, 
I think it starts to normalize for couples why they do what they do, why they jump into action, into self-protection, survival mode. And I talked about this last time. I want to get them in relationship to go from, you know, survival to arrival, if you will. Um, And so that requires actually making a commitment to therapy, you know, because partners might go, you know, like one session at a time, and that's okay. And I don't want them to be committing for months, but I do, I do want them to establish this idea that they're in it, um, that, that they're, they're in it and they're committed to the process because the process isn't easy. You know, it's people are up and down and all over the place. And one of the things I find so gratifying is if somebody is out the door because, you know, their partner looked at them wrong, I want to start to help educate them and to see why, you know, if there's enough desire to stay, how they can manage through that, how they can develop at the conflict and understand where these things, where these ideas and these thoughts and emotions are coming from and make them feel more normal and figure out how to cope better. Um, The other thing that she talks about, which is so important, is hormones, oxytocin. Um, In in women, there's also a hormone called vasopressin in men. Uh, You know, in in women, well, in both genders, I should say, oxytocin is the bonding chemical uh, between lovers and between parents and children. Um, And vasopressin is, is the male sort of territorial guarding and mate protection hormone, if you will. Um, And they've done studies with prairie voles, um, rodents. And, um, you know, prairie voles have uh, both oxytocin and vasopressin versus montane voles, which have less and are less monogamous, interestingly. Um, so, So more oxytocin actually means greater monogamy. Uh, they did, a, you know, sort of experiments and they manipulated the hormones and the chemicals and mm-hmm. they started to see this stuff. Um, so the, so how that applies to a couple is that the more pleasurable experiences they can have together, like sex, like intimacy, uh, like just, again, sex doesn't have to mean erection or orgasm. It can just mean touching and feeling good and warmth. You know, we talked last time about hugging till relaxed, right? Creating closeness raises the level of oxytocin and not necessarily for the goal of more monogamy, but for the goal of more pleasure and more positive neurons in those neural pathways. So that's kind of sounding like even if you're having a difficult time with your partner and you might not want to have sex with your partner, that might be a good idea just to kind of get you guys back on the same page. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Brilliant. You want come in the office and I want you to coach my people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, Esther Perel talks about this idea. And at first it, I was kind of like, I don't really get it. But this idea that, uh, you know, we yes, we often don't want to have sex. But and I'll be talking more about this later in other podcasts that that is a way of getting control, believe it or not. When we withhold or we buy into the idea that I'm so mad at my partner, so I'm, I'm not feeling sexual toward them. Well, you will feel closer if you have sex. Hmm. So, yeah, this idea that uh, closeness between a couple is so important and sex is the way forward uh, in that arena. And, of course, I want to make it very, very clear that consent is key. We never want to be... Uh, assuming even when we're married that our partner is willing to have sex. Uh, 
uh, or be intimate. So we have to really make sure to have have a very clear notion that uh, you would like to have sex, you would like to be intimate, and you have to hear a clear yes from your partner. Um, and at the same time, we have to, when we're not feeling like having sex or we're not, you know, into it, um, that's why planning is so important, right? So if we have a, a, you know, every Saturday night or every Friday morning or every Sunday afternoon, you know, thinking about that, it, you know, people say, well, you know, that sounds so unsexy. And once again, I think I've said this before, what's more unsexy than never having sex? Mm. So I'm hearing from couples where they're going, you know, days and weeks and months, sometimes years without having sex. So it's important to reconnect, to, to get close to have more oxytocin, getting back to the neuroscience. Um, if, if you're not feeling like it when it's time to meet with the plan or the date, right, the sex date, then I want you to kind of hold on to yourself, as I've talked about before, and, and think about yourself, but also think about the relationship, right? So if we choose ourselves because we're not in the mood, um, Sometimes what happens for women is by beginning and engaging in intimacy, we get in the mood. Um, and we surprise ourselves. And even afterwards, we go, wow, ooh, that was nice. I'm glad I decided to go forward with it. Now, I want to make it clear, obviously, if you're not feeling well, let's say you have the date, the sex date planned, and you're not feeling well, or you're feeling sick, you know, your, your partner should give you that hall pass and say, okay, I get it. And what I mean by a hall pass is, Okay, we had an agreement, but once again, we have to be flexible. Right, right? we have Absolutely. to say, yeah, we have. But stuff always happens, right? The best laid plans of mice and men. Yeah, mm. we made a date, but you know, I mean, dates have to get postponed sometimes. But if we postpone it too much or too frequently, then we run the risk of disconnecting with our partner. And I know, oftentimes, you know, people say, "Well, I'm so angry with my partner; I don't feel like it." But remember that, that, again, you're carving lots of negative neurons in those neural pathways by doing that. And we want to carve more positive ones, increasing oxytocin, you know, for men, vasopressin, that th these uh, hormones that make us feel closer. And we want to do our best to, to give that. Um, and I think, you know, I have to say, I, I, I think my clients are wonderful because quite often they get that idea. They don't even realize what's happening. Um, and once they understand that they are breaking their implicit agreement um, with their partner around the relationship and it being sexual by not having sex, you know, I think they wake up and they go, Ooh, I don't want to be hurting my partner by doing that. Yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so she also talks about uh, Fishbane, you know, talks about anxious avoidant attachment. Um, we can change that to healthy attachment. And I'm looking to do that with couples and understanding the brain. And, you know, to your point, Vicki, before about, you know, too much negativity, um, we want to create positivity. That's how we, we begin to go from relationship version one to relationship version two, by making these attachments healthier. Um, and, and how do we do that? Right. So, um, we, can develop flexibility, self-regulation, social cognition, moral behavior, and empathy. Empathy is a big one. Um, and that that's probably the hardest one, um, especially for men, because, again, they are the protectors and the providers. You know, women have the babies, so we're in tune with, you know, the crying and the, the emotionality of human behavior. Um, but it can be developed over time, and that's what's so exciting.
Can you talk a little bit more about how you can develop in those ways? Sure. Um, so again, if we if we understand that we are uh, avoiding or shutting down because we feel abandoned or attacked, right? Um, no, we need to know that we're thinking creatures and we have this prefrontal cortex, right? And the prefrontal cortex allows us to develop these things. So that's number one. We have to believe that we can develop them. And then your question about how we do that. Um, so self-soothing, right? Calming ourselves down. You know, we talked about this last time, this idea of practicing relaxation, meditation, focused breathing. This is the individual stuff, making sure to get exercise, socializing, eating right, calming down, sitting in the hammock in the sun, you know, all that good <laughs> stuff, right? That brings us pleasure individually. Um, that's good. That That's taking care of ourselves. Um, and it's like Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we have to go to the bathroom, we have to eat, we have to do all that basic stuff in order to be uh, better for others. Um, so we can develop uh, social cognition, which is social intelligence, Um we can develop emotional intelligence and development of empathy. Uh, we can get in touch with our own integrity. So, you know, you ask the question, how do we develop? One of the ways to do that is to think about what we want for ourselves. Do we want to be hurting our partners or do we want to be there for them? Do we want to cherish them? Do we want to hold their hearts in our hands? Um, and that means that if we do that, we feel better about us. So I know what I'm saying is is sort of it's it's two things. It's do things for the relationship, but when we do that, we're also doing it for us, and we feel better. So we know I I encourage people to not want their partner to change because they want it. Your partner has to want it, right. and that means getting in touch with with their integrity, right. So when you're working on those things in therapy, in front of your partner, that also helps your partner learn where you're coming from. So it's like you're growing together in a way while you're in front of the oh, therapist, yes. right? Yes, that's right. And that's where the most growth takes place. And I do tell people right from the get-go, um, Difficult feelings will come up mm -hmm. in therapy, uh, but I'm going to help you work through it, like getting on that airplane when you're afraid to fly. Mm -hmm. It sounds scary, but again, in with my integrity as the therapist and wanting to create a safe space for people to help them have a new and different relationship, I'm teaching them how to do that for each other when they go home. You know, the last thing I want them to do is save their differences to be worked out for the therapy session. I want them to do it at home. I, I give them lots of tools like uh, the 15 minutes a week tool, uh, the 15 minute rule, which is don't argue about a particular problem for more than two minutes. Try to solve it in two minutes. That sounds impossible. Maybe uh, <laughs> to some people. To some people, but that's that idea. I want you to kind of know where your fears are coming from. You're vulnerable because you're hardwired to be, right? Our brains are, to your point, Vicki, our brains, how did you say it before? The Velcro and the Teflon? Yeah. We, we're, <laughs> we're Velcro to... Negativity and Teflon to positivity. Slides that's right, right. off. <laughs> and, 
That's right. That's right. Because we're looking for threat in the environment. We're looking to survive. You know, when we were cavemen roaming the earth, if a wild tiger came out of nowhere, you know, we had to be ready to save ourselves. But that's not the case today, right? It's 2020. Yes, we are in the pandemic, so there is a viable threat out there. But for the most part, our world has gotten more and more comfortable with technology, science, and, you know, worldwide large distribution of food, you know, all of the ways in which technology has helped us to to relax a bit is great. But again, that, that uh, limbic system and that amygdala is still in place in our brains. And so we have to work against it um, to provide a safe space for our partner and for ourselves in relationship. And I think that's awesome because when you are in therapy and you're learning how to override those habits and you're learning how to really commit to wanting to grow, it's helping change from can he, can she to can we, right? That's right. Yes. You said it great. It's this commitment to co-creation, you know, not one changing the other, but both people co-creating the new relationship, the version two, the new marriage, so to speak. Um, I had an, a, an, a couple, one of them was in IT and I loved it that they went from version one to version two. That's awesome. <laughs> it's cute. It's so, it's just such an easy way to think of it, but it's, it's, it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I really want my couples to understand too, that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. You know, that rewiring is a process and a lot of practice is needed for it to become second nature. So that's why once again, you know, whether it's, Five sessions, you know, some couples have come in for just just several sessions, five sessions, 10 sessions to tackle or work on an issue, to begin to see it in a way where they can work on it um, as a team. Uh, Or maybe it's 16 sessions or maybe it's longer term because someone is dealing with an illness or a chronic health condition um, or or a a chronically changing world that they're living in their system is is you know often dealing with new changes so maybe they're they're coming long term i mean that's all okay uh but there's this idea that they are laying down new neurological cable excuse me i'm going to say that again (laughs) they're laying down new neurological cable for personal and interpersonal transformation this is an idea by uh, fishbane and also uh, shankman another author and what does that mean? So laying that new neurological cable for the the next phase, right? Yeah, I mean, that that is part of the next phase because they're coming in in crisis from phase one and beginning to lay down that new neurological cable is the idea. First of all, you have to make the cable, right? You have to develop it, mm. you have to create it. And then it's the process of kind of putting it in place, and that's all the sex and couples therapy uh, stuff. It's all the it's all the little things that we do in therapy to get them there. So there's this idea, to your point, Vicky, about uh, committing to a growth mindset that's key versus a fixed mindset, which I think a lot of couples this again it's this victim villain idea. We I want to shift that for couples and want them to see that they they can grow but they have to commit to the idea. And when it feels really hard, I want them to keep going. Uh because they want to recreate that that new marriage. Again, this idea that both people have to change, we don't want to be pointing to our partner to change. And as the change is occurring, 
that's that, you know, new neurological cable. So once again, thanks everybody for joining Vicki and I at Sex and Couples Therapy with the Happy Ending Therapist. I'm Donna Harris-Richards, LICSW and Certified Sex Therapist. You can find me on Facebook at the Sex and Couples Therapist. Also on Instagram, I'm so hip now, at <laughs> the Happy Ending Therapist. I love that I have an Instagram account. And my phone number is 508-990-9909. And please remember to always make time for pleasure, play, and passion. Thanks. See you next time.